Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Jude, and if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1027. Again, page 1027. Book of Jude, and we'll be reading verses 3 through 16 this morning. Beginning in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example of by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feast as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves." waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the un all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him these are grumblers malcontents following their own sinful desires they are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage let's pray together Father, we pray this morning for the preaching of your word. I pray for my brother as he comes that you would protect him from error, that you would lead him into all truth, that you would guide him by your spirit into what you would have said today and that you would be glorified today in the preaching of your word. Father, I pray for those of us who will listen today that you would be glorified in the way that we listen, that our hearts and mind would be open to your truth that we would learn, Father, 
and that we would not just gather new information, but that we uh, might have hearts ready to change and that we might see how we need to change, how we as a congregation need to change to be more like your son. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, I would just launch in, but I can't help but give praise to the Lord for our time of singing together this morning. Singing is uh, a wonderful and amazing gift of God to express the heart and the soul. And um, I, I know that this room is unusual in the fact that not all of us can hear precisely what the singing is like. But I'm telling you that on, up here, it is overwhelming the joy and intensity with which you sing as a congregation. I am encouraged by it. This is a mark of grace that is unmeasurable. Decibel level doesn't, mean, doesn't equal grace level, you understand. Uh, but when the voices overtake everything else, uh, that's when uh, it is really, truly glorious. And so I am thankful to be part of a singing congregation and uh, pray that God will grow us more and more in these things. Now, Bob Ebling is probably a name that most of you don't know, and maybe all of you don't know. He worked with NASA in the 1980s. Uh, he was a booster rocket engineer, and he worked on the Space Shuttle Challenger, on January 28, 1986, the Challenger took off, and 73 seconds later, it was engulfed in flames and came apart, killing all seven astronauts on board, including Krista McAuliffe, uh, the first uh, to participate in President Reagan's Teachers in Space program. The shuttle that Bob Ebeling had helped design exploded, killed human beings. As you might imagine, as you might even expect, he was wrecked with guilt. It wasn't long after the Challenger tragedy that Bob retired uh, and actually took up uh, restoring a bird refuge in Utah. But interestingly enough, Bob's guilt was not because of his failure as an engineer. Bob's pain overcame him because his team of engineers who were working with a contractor for NASA failed to convince the NASA officials to delay the launch. They warned that if the Challenger launched that day, it would explode. The temperature was forecast to dip very low the night before the launch, and the engineers concluded that the rubber O-ring seals would stiffen, and these seals were meant to keep the rocket fuel from leaking. So they assembled the data, they prepared to make their argument for delay, they had 
a teleconference. And at first, the NASA, NASA engineers, the NASA officials, that is, had agreed to delay. But in the end, by the end of the conversation, they decided to press on with the launch. Every piece of data was clear, but politics and public pressure won the day. On the morning of the launch, Bob was with his daughter in his car, pounding on the dash, frustrated and frantic, and he told her, the Challenger's going to blow up. Everybody's going to die. And that's what happened. A warning that could have saved lives was ignored. And avoidable tragedy was the result. Isn't that awful? I mean, if you could go back right now armed with the information that you have, with the knowledge of the catastrophe coming, you would, wouldn't you? To save lives, wouldn't you? You would go in that room and you would press the warning home and you wouldn't let go, you wouldn't let up, you would speak with great passion because it wouldn't just be a guess that devastation was coming. It would be a fact. Friends, that is the way the Bible speaks about the coming judgment of God. It's not a guess. It's not likely to happen. It will happen. And part of faithful gospel ministry is to warn people of its reality, its inevitability, not in order to manipulate people to do better, to make better with their lives, to do good, to be good citizens. That would be short-lived. No, no, no. We press home the warnings of condemnation in order that people would be saved from perishing. And it's this kind of warning about God's judgment that is actually quite out of fashion in the church today. That the existence of hell and its eternal conscious torment is all too often dismissed and explained away. But Jude doesn't dismiss it. Jude doesn't explain it away. Jude doesn't say, it's not really a big deal if you go after these false teachers or not. It's not a big deal if you actually contend for the faith. It's not a big deal if you actually get your grip on truth. He doesn't say that. He can't let it go because it's true. Because too many things in history have been pointing toward an ultimate judgment, a final condemnation. And he loves this church too much to keep the truth from them. So Jude is warning the false the church about false teachers who, verse 4 says, have crept in unnoticed. And he says that these men are designated for this condemnation. They will be condemned. The warning is, if you follow suit, if you allow the truth to be twisted, if you do not contend for the faith, their condemnation will also be yours. 
So that in verses 5 to 16, which is our focus for today, Jude focuses in on this condemnation. He shows them and he shows us that those who corrupt the faith will be condemned by God. Those who corrupt the faith will be condemned by God. Now, before we dive in, let's just be real honest about the fact that there are plenty of things that we could talk about in this text. So what I'd like you to do is to imagine this text as a song. And that main point, those who corrupt the truth, the, 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 the truth will be condemned by God. That is the melodic line of the song. That is the main thing. Now, there are plenty of other issues in any text of the Bible that you come to. There are counter-melodies, if you will. Here, I mean, there are issues of textual criticism, of interpretation, of inspiration, of which books should or should not belong in the Bible. I mean, in commentaries, uh, expound on these in great detail, which is a very good and helpful thing. And you'll hear some of my own conclusions on these things as we go along. But none of those are actually the focus of the text. The focus is the melodic line, the certainty of condemnation for those who corrupt the truth. So I'm going to stay close to that melodic line. Brothers, if you preach the Bible, stay close to the melodic line. Young men, when you begin teaching the Bible, get close, stay close, and stay on the melodic line. I mean, study hard, be informed about all the counter-melodies, be able to speak to them if necessary, but study and pray and be convinced of the melody that God has composed in each text, then preach it and stay on the melodic line, because that's where the voice of God will be heard the loudest and the clearest. So, if you leave today... And you are convinced that you have an understanding about this whole deal about Michael and the devil and Moses' body, but you have no clue why it matters, then you haven't heard the melody. Your soul hasn't been helped, and quite frankly, I've failed. So, if the counter melodies intrigue you, let's have coffee, we'll talk about them. But for today, let's listen to God as He sings this truth to us in a minor key that those who corrupt the truth will be condemned by God. The first thing we see is three events warn about condemnation. Three events warn about condemnation. We see this in verses 5 to 7. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged, in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So we'll just look at each event very briefly. The first in verse 5 speaks to the exodus of the people of God from slavery in Egypt and their wanderings in the desert. God sends plagues on the people of Egypt in order to rescue His people from slavery. 
And it seems as they're walking out, as they're going across the Red Sea, as it will, that they're walking out in faith. They seem to be following and trusting the Lord. But as it turns out, it's not a persevering faith. They grumble against the Lord in the desert. They get to the edge of the promised land and they see the potential dangers that are there. And they refuse to believe that God will actually give them the land that He promised. So the generation that comes out of Israel into the desert dies there. Why? I mean, he he says the Lord who saved them destroyed them. He had saved them out of there to make them His people. He's going to make a people, but not people who don't believe. He destroyed those who don't believe. Dear friends, an initial expression of some sort of faith is apparently not genuine unless it perseveres. And it perseveres by trusting the Lord, by obeying the Lord. Which needs to be said again and again in our day that a one-time profession of faith in Jesus is not what the Bible calls saving faith. Saving faith takes hold of Jesus not for a moment of rush of emotion at the end of a service or in a conversation or just in one moment of a hard time in life. Saving faith takes hold of Jesus for a lifetime. Not just for one moment, not only as Savior, but as Lord, as Master. You see, to deny the truth that faith produces a life of trust and obedience is to twist the truth. We must not be going around patting each other on the back and saying, have you ever prayed this prayer? The question the New Testament asks us to ask is not, did you ever have a moment in which you profess this? The the question the New Testament asks is, do you believe right now? Show me. That's what the New Testament would teach. That's what the New Testament asks. That's why the parable of the soils exists in Mark chapter 4. To say that apparently not everyone who has an exuberant and joyful initial response to the gospel does in fact have saving faith, that saving faith endures and produces fruit a hundredfold over a lifetime of faith. Next, Jude turns to the rebellion of the angels in verse 6. These angels had been created by God, given a place of authority by God to serve God in a unique way. But for these angels, that simply isn't good enough. They want more than just their assigned role in their assigned place. So they reach out and they grab it and they rebel and they refuse to stay under God's rule. Quite literally, uh, the word here, it would say, and the angels who did not keep their own position of authority... He has kept in eternal chains. Because they wouldn't keep their place, He'll keep them in a certain place. That's the the play on words that's there in this gloomy darkness. Darkness is a familiar picture of judgment in the Bible. Jesus says that those Jews who do not believe in Him, uh, according to Matthew 8, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and these angels will remain there until 
the great day, the day of the Lord, final judgment. The third event that warns of condemnation is Sodom and Gomorrah and its destruction, their destruction. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Like the false teachers in, Jude, in Jude's day, uh, the men of these cities pervert God's good intentions for sex. But they go further than just mere perversion. They pursue what Jude calls unnatural desire, which is a reference to homosexuality. And if you read Genesis 19, you will see that that's exactly what the men uh, were after. And God's response in Genesis 19, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, there is a line of reasoning today that says, yes, yes, yes. Sexual perversion, including homosexuality, was absolutely condemned in the Old Testament. But we're in a new era now. And the God of the Old Testament is essentially, essentially a, was essentially a belligerent old man who loved to smite anyone who was against him. But at the end of Malachi, he went on vacation. And 400 years back, he came back refreshed and very kind and loving and, and a nicer, gentler version of God who would never condemn anyone. It's interesting. Jude actually makes the exact opposite argument. Jude actually says, do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you remember the condemnation there? Do you remember the judgment of God there? It's the same for these guys who are perverting sexual ethics. Jude's argument is the exact same God who did those things is the God that, you, that these men must face today. He has not changed one iota. And so, in fact, other first century writers write about that area as still having the faint smell of sulfur to it. And that it just is a desolate place, a kind of ongoing testimony of God's judgment. And that may be why Jude uses the present tense here in verse 7. He says that uh, these sin-wrecked cities, the last phrase, serve as an example. Not they served as an example, aorist tense, which is usually speaking about the past. They serve as an example right now where you are. They serve as an example of the fact that punishment by eternal fire is a reality. Did you see how things stepped up as we moved from one event to another? First, we had physical death. Then we had eternal chains in darkness. And now we have eternal fire. And it's all warning about condemnation. That's actually Jude's point. That's why he transitions in verse 8 to say, all of these things, I'm not just generally saying that, I'm saying 
These people, yet in like manner, these people, the people I'm telling you about, the certain people who have crept in unnoticed. These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. If God brought judgment on those situations, Judah's saying, do you think he's likely to do anything else in this situation? The answer is no. He says they rely on their dreams. They claim they've had a vision from God that justifies the defilement of their flesh, that justifies the rejection of authority. This kind of thing is not unknown to us in our day. As people often seek to convince others of their life decisions moral or not, by saying, they had a dream, I saw a sign, I had a vision, the Lord told me, and all of those things are a very subtle, sometimes not so subtle, shift of authority away from the revelation of God, which is objective to my Self, which is completely subjective. It's to move away from objective truth and applying it to my life and moving into my subjective experience. Well, of course, God would want me happy, wouldn't He? They rely on dreams. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. And then he says they blaspheme the glorious ones. I believe he's talking about blaspheming fallen angels here, somewhat glorious because they are not to be trifled with. They are not to be belittled. They are not to be taken lightly, which is the only way I think you can make sense of the fact that he's going to talk about Michael disputing with the devil. But he underlines the audacity of the fact that they are blaspheming, they are down-talking, they are reviling. This kind of thing is not unknown to us either, where people in the midst of a prayer, which is to God, will all of a sudden begin to address Satan. Satan, you have no hold here. What? This is not prayer as the Bible teaches it. Jesus did not teach us to pray in that way. He taught us to pray, Lord, Lord, deliver me from the evil one. We are to resist the devil, and he must flee. But here, these people are so audacious in their claim of authority that they are denouncing demons themselves, denouncing them, not taking seriously the threat and the evil. And so Jude underlines this by referring to a story that's in a writing called The Assumption of Moses. It's not a biblical writing. It was probably quite well known to Jude's audience Uh, which is why he refers to it. But in the story, as it goes, Satan is disputing with uh, the archangel Michael. It's like a legal bout, 
Satan is hurling accusations against Moses, because, most likely because he had killed an Egyptian. And Satan is wanting to claim the body of Moses. But despite Michael's uh, position of authority, his great authority, the archangel, the highest of the angels, he will not blaspheme the Lord. That's Jude's relaying this to say, look, you know this story. Not even Michael would do something like this. He calls on the Lord to rebuke him. So that's what verse 9 says. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these false teachers who are clueless as to what they are messing with presume to do what even Michael won't. They are arrogant, they are thoughtless, and they only act on instinct to seek their own pleasure. Verse 10. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Three events. No persevering faith. Rebellion against God's authority. Perversion of God's commands to suit my desires. All these things lead to condemnation. The reason why he transitions to talk about the false teachers is he doesn't want them to think, hey, this is just a story about people a long time ago. He wants them to know this is about today. And just as it was about today in Jude's day, it is about today in our day. Are you persevering in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you persevering in trusting Him? You must. By God's grace, you must. Do you reject the authority of God, especially just when it suits your own fancy? Well, I've got this role of husband, but I don't want to stay in that role of husband. I want to step outside God's authoritative words for me as a husband. I just want to do things the way I want to do them. Do you think, do you, have, do you have the gall to think that you should be seeking your own pleasure in your own way, no matter what God says about it? This is about our day, isn't it? The same God who was Lord over those events is Lord over Jude's day, is Lord over our day. Secondly, three men warn of condemnation. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Woe, beginning of verse 11, is a word used by the prophets in the Old Testament. It was used to announce God's judgment and the reasons for it. And Jude picks it up to speak about these false teachers. Woe to them. Why? Because they are following in the footsteps of men like Cain and Balaam and Korah. Cain is a man of envy, jealous of his brother, 
He, Abel, he murders him. And actually, it's interesting that as Jewish tradition develops over time, Cain gains a reputation as an ungodly skeptic and as one who corrupts others. So that one commentator just put it this plainly, Cain's path is the path of evil. Balaam is a man of greed. He's brought on staff as a prophet by the Moabite king Balak to curse Israel. But that plan backfires, which you can read about in the book of Numbers. And apparently he does it for the money. This is what Peter in the parallel uh, passage in 2 Peter tells us. In 2 Peter 2.15 he says that Balaam loved gain for wrongdoing. He He loved making good money off bad things. Korah is a man who resists authority. He organizes a revolt against Moses and Aaron, claiming that these men who were put in those positions by God are actually self-exalting and power-hungry. And God puts the rebellion down by opening the earth and swallowing all of the rebels and then closing the earth right back up. If you haven't caught on by now, these men should be deterrents not examples. And yet, these men follow them, and following them leads to woe. And quite frankly, Jude says, the men who snuck into your church are no better than those guys. Listen to how he describes them, beginning in verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So let's just walk through those pictures. They are hidden reefs. You know, reef, these jagged rocks that sometimes are just above the surface of the water. Sometimes they're just below. Well, these men are are not visible at all. They're hidden reefs. I mean, on the surface, everything seems great. But behind their smiles and their Christian-type language, they shamelessly teach lies that will sink the ship of the church and will shipwreck your faith. They're selfish shepherds. They should be using their positions as teachers and those in authority for the good of others, but they're only serving themselves. They're waterless clouds, like dark clouds that roll in from the western sky and promise rain but never deliver. These men make promises about joy and peace and hope and happiness, but their line of teaching won't get you there. They're fruitless trees, twice dead, uprooted. Jesus actually taught us what to look for, how to watch out for false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. In Matthew 7, He says, you will know them by their fruits. And these men are fruitless. No No genuine spiritual fruit, which means no genuine spiritual life. They're wild waves. Oh, their teaching can really get things going, really mix things up, really move your emotions. But when everything is said and done, all that will be left on the beach is that filthy, slimy residue of shame. 
That's where lies get you. They're wandering stars. People in the ancient world counted on stars to get their bearings, but these men are more like planets. In fact, the word wandering is the Greek word from which we get the word planets. Ancient people didn't like planets. Planets stray off course. Planets are not as orderly. They're unreliable guides, and so are these men. So what we have are dangerous, selfish, shameless, untrustworthy, unstable, unreliable, spiritually dead men who leave nothing but filth and destruction in their wake. Woe to them. Verse 13, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Friends, we have to be careful about who we lift up as examples, don't we? Now, Jesus is the only perfect teacher, the only perfect example, the only perfect shepherd, but it is not without reason that the New Testament gives us qualifications for those who would lead us, qualifications for those who would teach us, qualifications in character and in doctrine and in the capacity to communicate that doctrine. But following this crew, following those who, tweet, who teach a twisted faith, it may seem fine for now. You know why? Because it tickles your fancy, because it tickles your ear, because it's telling you to live exactly how you would want to live if you never listened to the teaching in the first place. But following that crew will only lead you to the gloom of outer darkness with them. Truth matters. Teaching matters. The gospel matters. What God says matters. You and I have never, never been given authority to dismiss the words of God as if they were not for us. This is why in Acts 17, Paul says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Some people will talk about becoming a Christian and they'll, they'll, they'll want to, to, to invite their friend to come to know Christ, which is wonderful. And they might say something like, wouldn't you just love to meet Jesus? Wouldn't you just love to meet him? You can, you can meet him today. The, the, the reality of the matter is that's not actually a question that's up for debate. We will all meet Jesus. We will fall at His feet and worship Him as our Savior and our righteous advocate. Or He will be the judge who says, I never knew you. I never knew you. But Lord, but Lord, we, we, we did all kinds of things and we attached your name to it. I never knew you. But do you know how much I gave to the church, Lord? I never knew you. You realize how many four-year-old Sunday school classes I taught? I never knew you. Do you realize how many times I went to the Good News Mission to serve those men? I never knew you. Don't you realize, Lord, they called me one of their pastors? And all the things that happened through the ministry that I had, I never knew you. 
the second set of the four scariest words to ever hear from the Lord. The first is, they have their reward when we seek our reward from men and the applause of men. And this one right along with it, I never knew you. These events point us to terrifying condemnation. These men point us to terrifying condemnation. And thirdly, Jude concludes by saying all ungodliness warrants condemnation. He's just bringing it home here at the end. Listen to verses 14 to 16. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. All ungodliness warrants condemnation. And Jude uses a most unusual source to punctuate his argument. First Enoch. This is a writing that is not recognized as inspired Scripture by Jews, by Catholics, by Greek Orthodox, by Russian Orthodox, or by Protestants. Nobody recognizes this as inspired Scripture, and indeed it is not. Now, first, it is not unusual for an, an extra-biblical text to be quoted in the inspired text of the Bible. Paul does it in Acts chapter 17. Paul does it again in Titus chapter 1. And quite frankly, Jude does not call this Scripture, and he doesn't use the very traditional form as it is written in order to introduce it. But he does use the word prophesied. You can't get around that. So even though it's not Scripture, Jude considers this genuine prophecy, as genuine as, say, the unbelieving Caiaphas prophesied in John chapter 11. And Jude certainly believes that what he has written represents God's truth, or else he wouldn't have included it here. So what does he say? He says that all ungodliness war. He says that, that the Lord is going to come with his angels, which is not which is echoed in many places in the Bible, not the least of which is in the, the, the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, when it says that the Son of Man will sit on his throne with, with his holy angels in, in, in judgment. But what's interesting here is the repetition of two particular words. All and ungodly. Listen to verse 15. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Every ungodly deed... Every ungodly word, Jesus says every idle word, just cast off, throw off, all of them, 
every ounce of ungodliness must come face to face with the God that such ungodliness denies and denounces. And these men are ungodly. They're grumblers. They're malcontents. They're loudmouth boasters. They show favoritism to gain advantage. By the time you finish reading verse 16, are you in any doubt about condemnation? Are you in any doubt about what will bring condemnation? Those who corrupt the truth will be condemned by God. Jude is pounding away on that truth to a church, to a congregation, to sober them up because they have been infiltrated. They must be warned that if they don't contend for the truth, they, if they follow the path of corruption, they too will arrive at condemnation. Now look, texts like these are sobering, aren't they? We don't go home giggling after texts like this. It would be inappropriate to make lots of fun jokes in the midst of this. Because the tone of this text, the melodic line of this text, is very distinctly, very clear, clearly written in the minor key, and it does not resolve anywhere else. But texts like these are sobering because truth like this is sobering. As Christians, we should not respond to such texts with smug satisfaction. Oh, we're not like those people. Actually, a better response would be to do a couple of things. First, in response to a text like this that underlines, makes bold, puts in italics, all capitals, condemnation. The first thing we ought to do is thank God for Jesus Christ. Because we, in fact, are not better than the people in this text. We deserve this condemnation because of our sin. But our Father sent Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, and he stands in con he is the only one who stands in contrast to these teachers he is the only godly one because he is the god man and he took our condemnation in our place on the cross to use the language of this text he was destroyed in our place he was consigned to gloomy darkness in our place he was punished in the fire of god's eternal wrath in our place. The woe, our woe was pronounced upon Him, and the Father executed judgment on Him. And then He rose again on the third day, which was the public proclamation that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. The condemnation that we deserved, He took for us. And because He has taken it, and because we believe in Him, we trust in Him, we cling to Him with all of the might that God gives us by His grace, there is therefore now no condemnation for us. 
And so we read a text like this, and we don't get smug. We get loud in our worship. That's what we do. We start singing instead of getting smug. And we praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. And our second response should be one of self-examination. Because as long as we are in this world and as long as we are in this body, we will be plagued by sin. We will fight against this ungodliness that remains in us, that wants to bubble up in us, that comes spewing out of us. And we should want to search out every single speck of ungodliness that remains and repent of it and plead with the Lord for grace to change that we might honor Christ We don't get smug. We start singing. We don't get smug. We examine ourselves. And for those who are not Christians, friend, the question must be asked, are you really going to ignore such a warning? Are you really going to push the idea of judgment out of your mind once again? Are you really going to try to convince yourself that God would never judge a good person like you, somebody who's really trying to make something out of their life, somebody who's trying to be better, somebody who's trying to be good, somebody who's trying to reform their habits, somebody who's trying to eke their way into God's favor? Are you you really going to push that out of your mind? Because there is no one good. Not even one. All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Or will you come to grips with the fact that your sin deserves this darkness, this fire, this gloom, the permanence of God's judgment? And will you Run to Jesus Christ to save you. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. I'm going to pray for us momentarily. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would plead with you in this moment of reflection to turn your heart to Him, to confess your sin, to confess your inability to save yourself, to be good enough to be accepted by God, and to plead with God for mercy. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to save you. Confess to Him your sin. Confess to Him new faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's take a moment of quiet reflection and then I will pray.
Our Father, the reality and the inevitability of your judgment reminds us that you are holy, holy, holy. And that we are not. We are thankful that all of the evils of this world will be fully and finally dealt with at your hand. And we tremble to think about the evil in us being dealt with by that hand. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, the only godly man, the only righteous one, who died in our place, that our condemnation might be laid on him and we might be commended by you because of grace. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray by your grace you will protect us from smug satisfaction, from feelings of superiority, but rather the talk of condemnation will drive us back to the cross and the only reason why we've escaped it. And that you will give us grace to examine our own hearts, examine our own lives, to search out all the ungodliness that remains, to hate it, to turn from it, to plead for grace to change. And I pray for our friends who are among us even this morning who have not turned from their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you will give them grace to do so. That if there are unanswered questions, they simply will not leave this place until they speak with one of the Christians here to learn more about the gospel, to learn what it means to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. For those who have heard this call, even this morning, and have turned from their sin and the quietness of their own heart and are now trusting in Jesus, thank you. Father, we pray that we would not be those who dismiss or belittle the reality of condemnation, but rather we would contend for the faith and speak of judgment with tears in our eyes and a longing in our heart to see the ones to whom we talk bow before our Savior and be saved. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.